Hello everyone, welcome back to OnScript. I'm Matt Lynch. I am co-host of OnScript with Matt Bates, Andrew Johnson. I'm located in the UK at Westminster Theological Center, uh, where I've been for four years. We have a very distinguished guest today, Professor Susanna Heschel, who is a scholar of Judaism in the 19th and 20th centuries, including Jewish-Christian and Jewish-Muslim relations. And we'll get into that in a moment, but before we get into the interview, I want to set the context for what we discussed, since I didn't have a long time to dive into the details as much as I normally would have wanted. Uh, Professor Heschel leads a, a very busy life, and she graciously gave up some of her time for for me uh, to talk with OnScript. So she wrote, uh, she's written several books, but she wrote, the one we're talking about is called The Aryan Jesus, and it's published by Princeton University Press in 2008. And I, I came across this book when I was writing a blog post on Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rad, who was professor of Old Testament at the University of Jena in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. And I was intrigued by how a professor of Old Testament survived and functioned at a university that was not only you know, operational during Nazi the Nazi era, but also was the epicenter of anti-Semitic scholarship, or so-called scholarship, in the Nazi era. So you know, I, was, I was curious about how von Rad functioned there, and uh, that's not our focus today, but Jena does come into play because uh, Professor Heschel investigated uh, an institute called the Center for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence on German Religious Life. And that was headed up by a man named Walter Grundmann, who was a professor at the University of Vienna, and a number of the professors there were also involved in this institute. And uh, Professor Heschel was the, the first to really crack open the story on that institute, which was previously seen to be a minor episode uh, in the, the, the life of ac uh, academia during the Nazi era. Well, it turns out that the institute had over 120 members from a number of uh, seminaries and universities throughout the, the, the Reich during the Nazi era. <clears throat> so it's a, there's an important story being told by Professor Heschel, and she did all the first-hand research, going to Germany, digging into the archives, uh, uncovering the, the dark history uh, of this era. And it's really fascinating. It's, it's a real honor to speak with her. Um, so, Professor Heschel, in addition to being a, a, an amazing scholar in her own right, uh, she's also the daughter of renowned Jewish scholar and philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel, who some of you may have heard of. Uh, he was the author of a, a book called The Sabbath, and he wrote a famous two-volume book on the prophets. And, but he's, he was also a famous civil rights activist, so he marched arm-in-arm -arm with MLK from Selma to Montgomery, and he knew... Uh, and, and Susanna Heschel, who I'm interviewing, she she met MLK a number of times, and her father uh, knew him uh, pretty well, it seems like. So I, I put a, a few pictures of that on, on the website just so you could get a flavor for that. So it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and I also put a, a little bio uh, on her warm and loving relationship with her dad that she wrote. Uh, it's, it's really cool. So you'll, in the interview, you'll also hear her mention Martin Buber, and if you don't know who he is, uh, just have a just Google his name, Martin Buber, B-U-B-E-R, 
uh, and he was he, he was a major German Jewish uh, philosopher and theologian uh, who uh, it turns out I realized this until the interview that uh, Susanna's father Abraham Heschel taught Martin Buber modern Hebrew. So anyway, I was a bit starstruck during this interview, uh, but that's okay. It was really nice to have her on and learn from her. And I encourage you to, if you want sort of serious uh, research into what German uh, Christian scholarship in the Nazi era looked like, especially the, the, the way that the German church participated in Nazi propaganda and, and actually sought to disseminate it without specific directives from on high. Uh, her, her work is, is very illuminating. So I'm fascinated by this era. And and so, all right, let's get on with the interview. And I hope you enjoy it and, and share it. And of course, if you want to write a review on iTunes, we always appreciate that and share our work on social media. So thanks. In 1932, one year before Hitler came to power, the German Christian movement published its 10 guidelines. These 10 guidelines advanced a decisively race-based understanding of the Christian faith, including the prohibition on intermarriage with Jews, insisting that they would corrupt, quote, the body of our folk or people. In 1933, German Christian leader Reinhold Krause stood up at a rally of 20,000 people and called for the elimination of the Old Testament from the Christian canon. We could point to many such instances of Christian anti-Semitism around the time of and even before, well before, the rise of Hitler, but one particularly dark instance of Christian anti-Semitism pertains to the establishment of the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence on German Church Life which existed from 1939 to 1942. This institute was based in Eisenach, right in the middle of Germany. With us to discuss this institute, the Bible in Nazi Germany and the construction of an Aryan Jesus is Professor Susanna Heschel. Professor Heschel, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Dr. Heschel is Eli Black Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, who work her work focuses on Jewish-Christian relations in Germany in the 19th and 20th centuries, Holocaust studies, and the history of anti-Semitism. Her book, Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus, won a National Jewish Book Award, which, if you don't know, that's a really big deal. She's here to discuss her 2008 book, The Aryan Jesus, Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany, published by Princeton University Press. Dr. Heschel, before we before we turn to uh, discuss your work on the Aryan Jesus, I'd love for our listeners to hear more about you and your story. Could you talk about how your childhood influenced the direction of your life and scholarly work? Sure. So um, I grew up in New York City. My father was a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and he had come to the United States from Nazi Europe. He was born in Warsaw in 1907 to a Hasidic family a very pious family. He said he grew up surrounded by people of religious nobility, which I think is a wonderful phrase. Uh, and then in 1927, he went to Berlin as a student. And he used to describe Berlin as the center of the intellectual universe at the time. My father studied at the University of Berlin 
And although he had already been ordained as a rabbi in Warsaw, he also studied at the two rabbinical seminaries in Berlin. There was an Orthodox seminary and a Reform seminary. Now, those were two seminaries that really had nothing to do with each other because uh, of their conflicting religious perspectives. But my father actually went to both of them just to see what kind of methods they were using in the study of classical Hebrew texts. And that was typical of him. He wanted to listen to lots of points of view and understand how people were thinking. Now, my father finished his dissertation in December of 1932, so just a few weeks before Hitler came to power. And after that, he had to take a few years to try to get the dissertation published as a book, which was required by the university in order to get a PhD. He wrote his dissertation on prophetic consciousness, and it was a dissertation that was also a critique of contemporary biblical scholarship especially on the prophets, but not only. The ways in which university scholars tried to understand religion but often ended up demeaning what it was they were studying. So my father also tried, after Hitler came to power, to get a job outside Germany, and he uh, he tried very hard. And, of course, it was extremely difficult, as I'm sure you know, for, uh, for Jews to find another country that, and especially as a scholar, to find a position at a university. Ultimately, in October of 1938, my father was expelled, deported, along with the other Polish Jews living in Germany. Uh, My father had moved to Frankfurt two years earlier to replace Martin Buber as director of the adult Jewish education program. Uh, Buber had left for Palestine. My father actually taught Buber modern Hebrew, spoken Hebrew. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. So, yeah. And uh, he he was deported to Poland. He was there for a year. And then finally, at the last minute, he was able to escape uh, in the summer of 39, first to England and then in March of 1940 to the United States. I would say I grew up surrounded by people like my father refugees from Nazi Germany, scholars who used to talk at great length about what had happened to their teachers in Germany, great professors, great scholars who had become Nazis. And with a tone of disbelief, how could it be? That was a major topic of conversation at the table. My father and his friends were immersed in European culture, especially German philosophy and literature. My mother was a musician, a pianist, uh, and she also played European music, so (laughs) German composers of the 19th century, for example. And so I felt a little bit um, like an outsider, like a tourist in America, wanting to, uh, to find out something about America. Uh, but it was a kind of a bubble that I grew up in, New York at that time, my father's friends. So you asked how this affected my scholarship. First of all, I became very aware of the importance of German scholars, especially of the 19th century, the way in which they established certain disciplines and set the, the rubrics for what scholarship should be like, how we should approach texts that we read, especially biblical texts, it really was German scholars 
who established the fields of Hebrew Bible studies and New Testament studies. There were scholars in England and in Scandinavia and in France and the Netherlands who responded, but really the, the pacemakers were in Germany. And I grew up knowing their names and knowing a little bit about them and understanding that conflicts among historians altered the way we think about the material we study. So in some sense, we don't just study the Bible. We study the Bible through the eyes of the scholars who tell us what issues are important, what texts are important, what we should think about, the questions we should ask, and so on. And I wanted very much to get behind that scholarship, which functioned as a kind of veil, uh, and try to get back to to the text, or at the very least, to try to analyze the preconceptions, the assumptions on which scholarship was based. Why do scholars ask the questions they ask? What are the political interests, the cultural interests? I could draw an analogy here, if you like. Uh, so in the 19th century, starting with the 1831 publication of an article on 1 Corinthians by Ferdinand Christian Bauer, the Tübingen School of New Testament scholarship was born. And that school argued that the texts of the New Testament themselves had to be analyzed to understand the tendons. The tendency is not a strong enough word in English, but what was going on in the text itself, politically, theologically, socially, culturally, what's being What's being represented in the text? So there's something more than meets the eye, in other words. And I would say that just as the Tübingen school looked for the tendance in the text of the New Testament, I'm interested in the tendance of the scholars. Yeah, you mentioned in one of the personal biographical pieces that you wrote that you had initially planned to focus academically on the study of the Hebrew Bible uh, as in a kind of traditional sense. But then you became more interested in what you call the pathologies of biblical scholarship, out of which came the the book that we're discussing. So could you, first of all, discuss, describe what you mean by the pathologies of biblical scholarship? Sure. So for one thing, uh, I became interested in the fact that the prophets of the Hebrew Bible were depicted too often, starting in the 1890s, maybe even earlier, and continuing well into the 20th century, as people in a state of ecstasy, a kind of uh, um, loss of rationality, loss of consciousness. Sometimes scholars debated whether the prophets received the message from God during the state of ecstasy and communicated it at that point, or if the message came later, uh, and so on. But the experience of revelation that the prophets talk about was defined as an experience of ecstasy, of loss of consciousness, of loss of rationality, and so on. Um, some of this also was present in the study of Islam. Uh, Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, was understood to by scholars, European scholars, not as having experienced a revelation of God, but rather as having experienced epilepsy, a disease, a neurological disorder, and that it was during seizures, epileptic seizures, 
that Muhammad thought he was receiving a revelation. So in other words, there was a kind of, I don't know what to say, a kind of medicalization perhaps of Islam. Uh, but a path, but it was, there's a pathology in religion. And I think it's rather a pathology of the scholars. Yeah. And, and so what, what are the implications then in terms of, so this particular view on the prophet, what, what does that then translate into in terms of viewing the Old Testament or in Hebrew Bible or Judaism in general? Where would people take that insight? Well, I, I experience personally two assaults on the Bible. The first assault came when I was growing up and I went to a Hebrew school where we had to memorize in Hebrew and in Aramaic translation passages from the Bible and answer questions on an exam such as who said this phrase to whom? Did Moses say this to God? Did God say this to Moses? And so on. It was a very superficial way of reading the Bible. It was very uninspiring. And I knew that it was also wrong because my father, who was a great theologian, spoke in his lectures about a very different kind of approach to the Bible. And as a child, because I was an only child, my parents used to take me to his lectures all the time. So I knew what he stood for. And I knew that the education I was receiving contradicted what my father stood for and was, in fact, exactly what he stood against, this kind of approach. And I was fed up with it, and it was Dr. King, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement that saved the Bible for me, because Dr. King made the words of the Bible come alive. There were times when Dr. King would speak when I I almost didn't know, were these his words or the words of the prophets? And I love that. The Bible became very powerful. So he rescued the Bible for me. And then the second assault came with biblical scholarship, which was really um, almost like an effort to uh, to denigrate the text uh, and pathologize it. And I, I, I just found that impossible. So obviously the search for an Aryan Jesus uh, in Nazi Germany is is also one of one of those pathologies, to say the least. Uh, so how did you stumble upon the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence in German Church Life? So what happened was this. I, I wrote my uh, my book about Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus. Uh, and while I was finishing that book, so this is a book about a 19th century Jewish theologian who engaged issues of ancient Jewish history and ancient or early Christian history. So uh, Geiger was the person who said that Jesus was Jewish, that he was a Pharisee, uh, that he didn't say anything that other rabbis hadn't also said. Um, but while I was finishing that book, I was in a library in Berlin uh, at the Technical University where there's an institute for the study of anti-Semitism. And I was browsing in the library and I found some volumes from the war years, 1942. I looked at this book, I saw an anthology of articles written by prominent theologians, German theologians. I was curious, what would a theologian be writing about in 1942? And as I went through it, I saw it was just sheer anti-Semitic propaganda. So then I asked, who published this? Mm. And I found that this volume had been published by this institute. Okay. 
So then I started getting interested in the Institute and I looked around and nobody really had written about it. Yeah, it, it's a, it's amazing. You know, when I read your book, I just thought, wow, this is this is serious historical scholarship. This is what scholarship ought to look like. Um, so um, so I'm, I'm curious. One of the things I was curious about is I was I was I was reading your book was how you maintained a, a steady scholarly hand as you studied something that must have been so deeply and personally infuriating. It was personally upsetting, very upsetting um, to study this material. And I uh, decided after that that I wasn't going to work in the Nazi period any longer um, because it uh, it really did upset me very much. And I had to spend a lot of time on this because I would go to an archive and they would give me a few pages and I knew they had more, but they wouldn't give it. And so then I would have to get a grant and fly back to Germany a year later and get a few more pages. It was very laborious. I traveled in Germany to archives in different cities, um, in Heidelberg, in Jena, in Kiel, and all over. And everywhere I went, I would get something, uh, some documents. But it, it was laborious and it was expensive. Uh, and I had to keep applying for grants to finance the work. And, and yeah, it put me in a bad mood. Of course, it upset me very much. And then I had children and I put the project aside for a little bit because I, I just didn't want to be working on something like this Mm. when my children were little Mm. or when I was pregnant, even I just felt it wasn't right anyway. And then I came back to it and yes, uh, it was, it was, um, hard work. It was in some sense, I think my personal response to the fact that my grandmother and three aunts were murdered. Uh, and I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to somehow expose some of this history. So could you talk for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with this about some of the, the kind of so-called research that the Institute produced? Sure. So the issue is really this. Uh, already even before World War One. There were occasional ministers in Germany, Protestant pastors, who would say, oh, we have to get rid of the Old Testament. It's a Jewish book and doesn't belong in the Christian Bible. And even the distinguished theologian professor at the University of Berlin, Adolf von Harnack, said, yes, we have to get rid of the Old Testament. But these were occasional voices. It was after World War I that they became more frequent, more widespread. And even before Hitler came to power, they came together as a group and took the name the German Christian Movement. So this was a movement that was very, very nationalistic, wanted to get rid of, very anti-Semitic, wanted to get rid of everything Jewish in Christianity. They wanted a manly church. They supported Hitler. They wanted to apply the racial laws of the state to the church itself, which was not required by Hitler, but they wanted to do it voluntarily. The institute itself was formally established by these, this German Christian movement in 1939. They had working groups of professors of theology and they had about 60 or more professors who were members as well as pastors, bishops, religion teachers, lay people. And the working groups had particular objectives. There were quite a few of them. The first thing they accomplished was to publish a version of the New Testament purged of all Jewish references. So they got rid of the Old Testament. They made a kind of um, synopsis of the Gospels, 
They eliminated things such as Jesus's genealogy from Old Testament figures. And they also uh, had a problem with St. Paul. Paul was a Jew. So they took some of Paul's writings, they left out the biographical or autobiographical parts, and they elevated the Gospel of John, which they viewed as an anti-Jewish gospel. They produced a hymnal purged of Hebrew words such as hallelujah. They produced a catechism. And they also held conferences constantly and published the proceedings as a volume or as individual articles. They went on lecture tours to universities. And their work was known. I found, for example, postcards written by soldiers on the Eastern Front thanking the Institute for its work. And I shudder to think of what they were referring to, their oblique postcards. So that was the kind of thing they did. And when the war came to an end, they, for the most part, they kept their jobs. Some of them could no longer be professors, but they stayed on within the church in positions of importance, both in East Germany and in West Germany. Yeah, that, that was something that really astounded me as, as I read read your book and finding out about the post-war career of, of some of these uh, scholars who were part of the Institute and how actually being part of the Institute in some ways bolstered their career post-war. Uh, so yes. so, so I, I find that, could you explain a little bit how how it could be that this the involvement in the Institute didn't somehow backfire on them once Nazi uh, the Nazi era came to an end? Sure. So there are many reasons for that. In part, the Allies were naive. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, if you had joined the Nazi party in 1930, you were in big trouble after the war and most likely lost your job. On the other hand, one could argue that it was worse to join the Nazi party in 1937 when you could see what Hitler was doing than in 1930, but okay. But then let's say some of these institute members, in fact, had joined the Nazi party as early as 1930, but they did not lose their jobs, at least not for that reason, because they would produce a letter from a pastor saying, so-and-so went to church every Sunday. Or they would simply say, here I am, I'm a theologian. Theologians are not political, we're not worldly people. And the Allies were naive enough to accept it. They thought, well, how could a Christian be a Nazi? So that was one way they could get off the hook, so to speak. And then, of course, the church would protect them. The church also had to purge its ranks of Nazi pastors. And in some cases, certain uh, state churches were really, really full of Nazi pastors. But what could they do? They would lose so many of their pastors at a time when Germany needed pastors, just like they needed lawyers and doctors and judges. And as you well know, of course, after the war, those fields were not purged either, for the most part. So what to do? Sometimes these people would go to the state authorities and get a letter that would exonerate them and then bring the letter to the church and say, see, the state exonerated me. Shouldn't you do the same or vice versa? In some cases, because, in fact, just because a certain theologian had been a Nazi, they were useful after the war to the church and even to the East German secret police, the Stasi. Because the Stasi could hold it over them and say, look, if anybody finds out that you were a big time important Nazi, you're going to lose everything. So you better cooperate with us. 
Hmm. So they would turn into spies for the East German secret police. And they would spy on their students and their colleagues within the church for the secret police. And I want you to understand that that was a very terrible thing to do. Because on the basis of a report, the Stasi could have you imprisoned, even tortured. You could lose everything. So for a theologian or a pastor to engage in that kind of effort, that's pretty horrible. But they did it. They did it for the sake of their own careers and their prominence. They did it also because the Stasi would sometimes give them money, Western currency, and send them on a trip, which they enjoyed. So there were perks involved. They got perks for turning over their colleagues to the secret police. Mm. So that kind of gets me back to a question about the Institute itself and and what you consider the primary drivers and motivators for those working in this Institute. Was it was it sheer hatred of Jews? Was it a combination of that with an attempt to hold on to their power? Or how do, how do you look at that, the motivations behind uh, involvement in this r- ridiculous enterprise of uh, of creating an anti-Jewish Jesus? Well, it's pretty clear to me from looking at the documents that they were all anti-Semitic. They really just hated Jews. And they talked about it constantly at their meetings. It was just a constant, constant driving force. So that was clear. I think they also had other venal motivations. So they wanted to be important people within the Nazi Reich. And how do you get to be an important person if you're a theologian? What can you do? What can you offer? And in fact, one could say, well, you know, uh, the um, the Nazis, what, 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 why would Hitler need a professor of theology, for example? And so they presented themselves this way. They said, look, Germany is fighting a military war and we are fighting for you on the spiritual level, spiritual battlefield. So we're trying as theologians to rouse, in other words, support from the population for the war effort, for the deportation of Jews and so forth. There were a few other motivations as well. So uh, at the beginning of the Nazi Reich, when Hitler came to power, so the theologians actually were um, marching when there were Nazi parades, for example. They were marching at the uh, head of the line. Hitler was a little bit worried. Would the theologians oppose him, for example? But as it turns out, the theologians supported Hitler and he, he was happy, satisfied Hitler. And then he turned to other things. So the theologians then were disappointed. I'll give you an example. In 1936, the Nazi party said that the swastika belonged to the party and couldn't be used by other institutions within the society. I wrote an article about this because I found letters written by pastors pleading to be allowed to keep the swastika on the altar in the church where it was placed next to the cross or on the masthead of the church newspaper. So in some sense, you could say that by 1936, well, Hitler lost interest in the churches because they were already in his pocket. Hmm. Hmm. And they were a little disappointed. Yeah, so it's. I wonder if, you know, like you've got a, 
the the cover of your book, in fact, has a has a picture of an altar with a swastika at the front of a church. And it might be easy to look at something like that and, and think it was a top-down enterprise where Hitler mandated that churches had to do this. But in fact, a lot of this was ground up, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Now, this was voluntary. The churches voluntarily Nazified themselves. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, that was something that, that was particularly striking to me in reading this book was how eager the churches were to gain recognition and and uh, just involvement in the, the Nazi enterprise. This is it's kind of like local boosterism. Yes. Um, so another thing that I was just wondering if you could share with our listeners, I, I uh, don't want to hold you too long, is if you could just explain some of the historical gymnastics that scholars had to engage in to, to end up with an Aryan Jesus, what were some of the, the, the ways that they built that case? Some of the ways they built that case that Jesus was Aryan. So this, again, begins already the, uh, in the 19th century in a vague sort of way with uh, scholars, reasonable, legitimate scholars, fine scholars, saying that Jesus wasn't really Jewish. Why? Because they paint a very negative picture of Judaism in the first century. It's a really degenerate religion, they say. And Jesus is not a degenerate person. So he stands in sharp contrast in the way they depict him to the Judaism of his day. He is not representative of Judaism. And that, that kind of motif continues, uh, well, to, actually, even to our day. So more specifically, though, around the turn of the century, beginning of the, of the 20th century, there were scholars who tried to formulate a more specific argument. They say Jesus was um, preaching in Galilee, and they draw a distinction between the Galilee and Judea, the southern part of Israel. The Galilee, as you know, uh, has beautiful rolling hills and flowers and trees and so forth. And Judea, the area around Jerusalem, is dry uh, and also has hills, but they're, they're desert. So they say, look, Jesus is in Galilee in a beautiful flowery area, preaching a religion that's similar to the topography, a uh, religion of, of flowers and trees and sunshine. And then he goes to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it's dry, desiccated, desert land, and that's where they put him to death. So even the topography is employed to draw that distinction. Now, going further, the next step, they argue that Galilee itself wasn't really Jewish. That is, the argument is that when the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, something that's depicted in the Hebrew Bible, they took everybody away, all the population. And that land, the northern part, became empty. And gradually, foreign peoples moved into that area. So the argument went that Aryans came to that area. Who are Aryans? Well, they're never too clear about it, but they could be people sometimes from Iran, from India, from Iraq, from Assyria, and so on. But they're foreigners. They're Gentiles. They're not Jewish. The argument continues that around the 3rd century, 2nd century BCE, these people 
converted, some of them converted to Judaism, but racially they were Gentile. And Jesus, they say, was born of these people. The argument can be found already at the beginning of the 20th century. So Jesus was born to a Gentile family that lived in the Galilee, and he was not racially a Jew. And the argument continues, and that's why he was so well-received in the Galilee. These were Gentiles who recognized that he was preaching a Gentile religion. But when he went to Jerusalem, the Jews killed him. They hated him. They didn't understand him and so forth. So that's the basic outline of how they came to this argument. It's um, an argument that's built on sand. I would recommend a book by Mark Chancy, who looks at this argument about the Galilee, how the Galilee is used uh, in New Testament scholarship. It's a great book. And I would also add that, of course, contemporary New Testament scholars do not argue in that way. Yeah, not at all. I, I think uh, the, the it's interesting, too, how geography even gets caught up in in this this discussion. Um, it, it, geography becomes a, a sort of metaphor for spiritual degeneration and so on. Which, which of course, yes. the geography itself was different in the first century uh, in terms of vegetation and so on. So that that's ridiculous, even from from the get go. But um, we have we have one question that we ask all of our guests, and I, I'd be curious to hear your your answer to this question. What's one idea or thesis or tendency in contemporary biblical scholarship that you think needs to die? Well, I would say that the 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 aspect that concerns me most of all is the uh, way in which some scholars, certainly not all, but some scholars of the New Testament take Jesus's teachings and place them in contrast to Judaism rather than as representative of Judaism. Uh, and that would worry me. And that can include at times um, liberal as well as conservative thinkers Sometimes people will say, you see, Jesus was a feminist. He talked to women. He taught women. He had women disciples and so on. And no other rabbi of his day would do that, which is, first of all, not true about other rabbis. But also one could say just as well, well, you see, if Jesus did it, it means that Judaism in the first century was doing that. Mm. <laughs> he is just, Jesus is just as representative yeah. of Judaism in his day as any other rabbi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's really, really helpful. And I think also there's a tendency to polarize Jesus from uh, Pharisees as well. Uh, that's probably something analogous uh, when, in fact, within the New Testament, there are a number of positive depictions of Pharisees that are overlooked in the process. Yes. Uh, what, exactly. Yeah, one of the ones I come across a lot because I'm, I'm, one of my areas of research is, is conceptions of violence in the Bible. And... I often see a very stark contrast drawn between Jesus' view of violence and all other Jews and the Old Testament itself. And so people will say things like, you know, the idea that you ought to love your enemies is completely unprecedented in the Bible, when in the law itself there are references to if your enemy's ox falls in the ditch, you're to bring that ox back to them, even if that's your enemy. And that's what, you know, that's loving your enemy, isn't it? <laughs> and, right, and, and exactly. so on. So the, the, there are a number of, I think you're right, that the, the polarization between Jesus and his contemporaries in the Old Testament 
and it puts you in a place where you're 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 cutting Jesus off from his context and his Jewish people and his Jewish antecedents in the in the um, Old Testament. Yes. Uh, well, Dr. Heschel, I don't want to keep any longer, uh, but it was such a pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, if just Thank just you. before we go, I'm wondering if you could signal at some of your current research and and where we can. Uh, get a hold of that. Sure. Well, I have a book that's coming out in a few weeks uh, on the history of Jewish scholarship on Islam, but it's coming out in German, so I don't know how many of your listeners (laughs) will be interested in that. There are a few. Uh, uh, I also wrote a rather long article on human dignity in Judaism that's coming out in a a collection of articles on human dignity uh, that was uh, edited by Dieter Grimm and Alexandra Kemmerer. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, and I've also been working on issues of race, um, stemming in part from my work on the Aryan Jesus. And I have some articles on that coming out too. Okay. Wonderful. We'll be on the lookout for those. And if we speak German, if anyone speaks German, reads in <laughs> German, then we'll. We'll grab a hold of your your new book on Jewish scholarship in Islam. Is that right? On Islam. On Islam. Islam. On Islam. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Onscript.study.